everyone you talk to in, in business, uh, in the think tank world, in government are all talking about India and potentially you know, scrambling to to try and, and try and get on board the India train. I'm Richard Yetzenga. You're listening to Blue Lens on Mike. In this series, we hear from a broad range of experts from business, economics and further afield, bringing you unique perspectives on a world still grappling with post-COVID reality. Joining me today are Anil Padmanabhan, based in Delhi in India, and a journalist of quite some renown, and Erin Watson, international policy expert. Erin, I might start with you. There's, it just seems to me this kind of explosion in interest in India, activity around India, discussion of India, presence of India. What do you put this down to? Yeah, Richard, you're definitely right here in Australia and I don't think it's unique to Australia either, but certainly here uh, it seems to be that everyone you talk to in, in business, uh, in the think tank world, in government are all talking about India and uh, potentially, you know, scrambling to to try and, and try and get on board the India train, whatever that really means. But what does that actually come down to? Well, there's probably two key things that I think are really driving this. So the first thing is the international environment, and that's really largely been shaped by US-China strategic competition. So when you see uh, countries that have been historically very heavy on trade arrangements with China are now starting to see new markets, uh, and obviously India is an important part of this. Um, so, you know, I, I think that you start to see um, country or countries and potentially businesses following saying, is, the, is this a, a different market that we could be looking at? Um, and obviously, then the second thing that's really driving that is just the internal change in India over the last, you know, I would say decades, it's not even that recent, you know, since the 1990s, you know, the, the growth uh, in India's GDP and just the sheer size of the market, you start to see uh, governments and businesses looking at looking at India. So I think that's what's really driving it. It's actually two different factors uh, that, you know, international environment, uh, the US-China strategic competition, and then, of course, just the sheer growth of, of India's market in the last few decades. So in actual fact, it's India out as well as the world in, which which does that make you think this is likely to stick, this is likely to continue to progress and India will become more engaged and more embedded in the global economy? Well, it depends. Uh, you know, I think that you've got, um, again, there's sort of two different sides to this story. So the first side being that you have an India that is increasingly looking outward in terms of its strategic and defence cooperation. You see an India that's increasingly confident uh, in asserting its place, not only in the world, but very much as a de facto leader of the global south. Uh, and a really good example of that is in the G20 this year. So you have a troika comprising Indonesia, India and Brazil. Uh, and I think that's the first time there's been a troika that 
know, depending on how or whether you decide to define it this way as the global south, uh, that you've had that arrangement. And so you see India advocating for, say, the African Union to join the G20 similar to the EU arrangements in the G20. So you start, we're starting to see India really assert itself. Uh, there's obviously a lot of conversation as well around reform of the United Nations Security Council and the P5. So I think we're really starting to see this India looking outward and 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 asserting itself. And then you have this other India, which Anil is probably a better place to speak on from the inside, but certainly from the outside, I'm seeing in India that since independence, you know, continues to be quite a nationalist country that's relatively inward looking in terms of its own economic arrangements. And you know, I think that a good example of that is the, um, you know, we all saw in the media here in Australia, the farmer protests, which was, um, you know, uh, which was in response to the attempt for a liberalisation of domestic markets. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of political capital spent on that and it, and it didn't go the way that perhaps the government would have liked it to. So, you know, in that sense, I still see a country that you know, it is still quite internal, um, quite internally looking, because if you can't liberalise internally, then you know what what does that mean for foreign companies? Not much, and I think it just really reminds us of India's history, its history of colonisation. You know, it nationalised its assets post independence, and I think that's a really still an important part of of India's economic identity. And maybe Anil, turning to you, parallel to this, I guess, transition in India's external engagement is the domestic economic transition. And I've heard you talk about it as something that the macro data masks. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, Richard, if I can just uh, complement what uh, Erin just laid out before us, you know, the time, I just want to actually expand the time period she's talking about. The transition, you know, India, long story short, has primarily been a planned economy and a market economy only off late. So this dismantling of the planned economy as a thought, as an idea, commenced from 1980, you know, when Indira Gandhi returned to power. And the sixth plan, it's all there online. So it laid out the kind of architecture on which to go forward. And it was also the document with which India negotiated uh, backstop facility with the International Monetary Fund, so which is why the fund agreed to bankroll India at that point because we had agreed to these market-based reforms. Another story that India, Indira Gandhi junked it three years later, repaid the loan and got out of it. But to the credit of a son who succeeded her, he started dismantling. So the telecom revolution seeds are in the mid-80s, you know. And that you have to incrementally add in a country like India. So I would say in a period of 80 to 2010, it was this pivot, which was like 90, 10 between planned and market moved about now, I think about 60, 40 in favor of the market or 70, 30 in favor of the market. Uh, large chunk is still controlled, you know, which is in a country like India with levels of poverty, development challenges. I don't think the state, role of state will ever diminish. Sorry, just wanted to add that to what I didn't mention. Now, coming back to your question, <clears throat> You know, this basically what I'm trying to say is uh, that the aggregate number masks the growth beneath, right? You know, so when you look at the aggregate number, it's people give it different metaphors. They say this is the lighthouse of the world economy, et cetera, et cetera. My point is, yes, that's fine. Macro numbers 
national macro numbers are pretty very good, especially when you compare it to other countries. So a clutch of emerging markets like Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, India are doing exceedingly well. But having said that, I think you have to look beneath the bonnet. That's what I've been arguing. So if you look at, you know, just let's begin with the three broad sectors, whether it's agri, industry or services, they're all operating at multiple speeds. Agri, uh, Erin alluded to, which is true, which is uh, uh, the most difficult task to manage from the existing regime to a more market based but there's a lot of politics in that i don't want to go into that mm -hmm. so if we disaggregate this further you have the you know urban rural and what we call the rural this is not something unique to india worldwide this definition exists these are basically they are not rural and neither they are urban they are in transition and uh, these mimic the consumption behavior of urban areas but they operate as a rural governed, so they will be governed by local bodies, not a corporation, not municipalities, etc. So they don't get the good governance, not that within quotes, good governance that comes with uh, an urban uh, space. But at the same time, they mimic that. So if you go down, you drive down in India, you will see, you know, high rise apartments in rural areas. So basically, the panchayat owns it. Uh, let's take uh, uh, Amazon. They have located their warehouse. I mean, this way back, about uh, ten years ago, they located their warehouse in a proper agrarian setup because they realized that they didn't have to pay taxes out there because it was land was the village owned, and uh, they got into a bilateral deal with the village, which they will hire them as security, and in return, of course, they paid for the land. But I'm saying that uh, they didn't. If they located the same giant facility in an urban area, they would have to pay a top, top dollar for that. But they worked around it. So this change you are seeing, and one thing helping all of this is the connectivity of roads. India has dramatically transformed from 2000 to 2023. It has gone from almost 10% rural roads to almost 90% rural roads now. They have, I think, built some 700,000 kilometers of roads. So this connectivity is also helping this transition. So we earlier in India, you would see a kind of precipitous fall from an urban to a rural. Now, no, you drive anywhere in India, you will see it's a contiguous phenomenon because of this urban character. So now all of them are going at different speeds. So I actually want to <clears throat> share something which uh, VC fund shared with me. And I think it's a very good comparison, may not be spot on on whatever the numbers are, but it's a very good thumb rule to understand the multiple Indias I'm talking about. So they say <clears throat> there's an India one, which is the top tier, which is about 120 you know, uh, million people. And uh, they have a GDP of about 1,000, uh, you know, they account for about 1,400, you know, 1.4 trillion GDP and a per capita income of $12,000, okay? Then you have India two, which is 100, uh, population of 100 million and uh, uh, population share of 300 million and a per capita GD, GDP of 3,000. Look at the steep fall between $12,000 and $3,000. And now finally India 3, which is where the bulk of India lies, their population is 1.2 billion and uh, they contribute about 1.8 trillion uh, to the uh, GDP and their per capita income is 1,500. But this is updated. It's been... It's, Actually, yeah, it could have moved up to 1700, 1800, but it's not like doubled or tripled. So that is what I was trying to explain to you that when we look at the macro numbers, uh, 
it looks fine. I'm not saying they're bad, but all I'm saying is look under the hood because there mm. may be a lot more opportunities out there. You know, it's not that some you'll find an IED or something, but it's just that the opportunities are far more because catering to this bottom of the pyramid means health, education, electricity, basic things, which is a huge consumer demand out there. So that's what I think I'll stop there. Over to you, Richard. No, that, that's perfect. And, and it's interesting you both mentioned agriculture. For, for many countries, agriculture is a difficult sector. The Dutch and the New Zealanders, for instance, are finding with the climate transition, they've kind of left agriculture till towards the end. And it, it's, a, it's a big, hairy, audacious problem to resolve <laughs> the transition in that sector. So India absolutely is not alone. How, how, um, how linked do you think this domestic transition is to the external engagement, the external transition, Anil? Are they reinforcing each other? Oh, it's linked. In fact, Erin's uh, opening remarks alluded to it. The why, why is that the rest of the world is looking at India? So everyone is transactional in this world and more so in today's world. So they're obviously looking at a return. And uh, India needs the resources and uh, it doesn't have all the resources. And the, uh, the foreign investors is looking for a good market which uh, checks off basic boxes like rule of law, etc. And uh, being a democracy also helps. And the uh, US-India visit, uh, I think would have strength, you know, given a sense of comfort to a lot of foreign investors that uh, who who look at it in, through that prism, that it's a good thing. So they move hand in hand. <clears throat> so if you look, you know, if you, that's why if you look at the scope of economic policy, which is, as I said, over four decades, ideally, but even if you look at it in the last two decades, it is all about improving the ease of business, whether it is, you know, uh, the license, abolishing the license Raj in 91, or whether it is, you know, uh, creating the foundations for a digital economy where, you know, you're creating disintermediation. So the India's financial sector has uh, leapfrogged primarily because it has uh, integrated fintech into the whole idea. We'll come to that later. So <clears throat> it has become business friendly. But to manage the politics, you will often hear, in fact, this year's budget to the FM uh, finance minister said that. So she said that, uh, you know, we, we are not just about ease of business. We are also ease of living. That is the you know metaphor for looking after the not swell off the bottom of the pyramid. What I talked about the 1.2 billion and the best index for you there is the free food grain program, which now extends to 800 million people and is three years and we are still counting. So that that is the base which is really really vulnerable in India. So they're looking. It's no longer a binary. That's the great thing. It's uh, uh, that credit to this government because they have not done reforms by stealth. Like Erin pointed out, the farm laws they brought in, it was very transparent the way they bought it, it boomerang for whatever reasons. And uh, But everything is transparent. So they have, you know, uh, earlier business was a dirty word. So all the politicians would meet in stealth. That era is over. This is a government which openly proclaims that business is a key stakeholder in India's future, whether they're Indian or foreign. So that's another mindset reset that has been achieved in the last 10 years. But the foundations, like I said, go back to 1980. Which means we need to take a, the right perspective um, on this and keep updating your assessment about what's happening in India because there is a lot of change. That's clear from, from both of you. Erin, uh, India reached a free trade agreement with Malaysia in 2011 and then nothing until free trade agreements last year with Australia, Mauritius and the UAE. 
It's currently negotiating free trade agreements with the UK, the EU, Canada, and the Gulf Cooperation Council. So clearly, after a decade hiatus, there's been an enormous shift in thinking and effort and resource resources. How big a difference do you think these agreements are making, both for India and the counterpart economies? Well, I think the important thing to note here is just this, you know, positioning this in that those broader trends that both, you know, myself and Anil have already spoken about. So, you know, um, free trade agreements are a key tool in in a country's economic statecraft and its foreign policy. So you can see here that as Australia, uh, sorry, as India is trying to, um, you know, assert itself uh, internationally and as it grows economically and, you know, it's well and truly positioned there um, now, you can see that uh, obviously not only these countries have sought to negotiate FTAs with India, but also India has been open to that as well. I think um, I want to make a few points here. One is that if you look at the countries here, a lot of this is around the movement of people. Uh, so that's a really key thing that India is looking for when it negotiates trade agreements. Uh, and we've seen that with the recent India-Australia interim trade agreement uh, with India. And if you take a step back and, and look at this from the Australian perspective, will it make a difference? Well, there are some really good things that can come out of this. But if you look at Australia's trade mix, Perhaps it's, you know, India is not going to be the be all and end all there. And I think that's one of the problems that, uh, you know, some approaches have been with India, that it's going to be the next China, it's going to replace China. And I don't see that. Uh, and, there's, and I'll give you some numbers around that. So if you look at uh, Australia's top three uh, exports, four and five, which is tourism and education in Australia's trade is around $30 billion. And these are the industries where I really think that you'll start to see some change, but that doesn't change Australia's overall, uh, you know, diversification of its export markets. It just doesn't when you're dealing with industries that are $150 billion, $100 billion. Uh, so I'm a little bit more sceptical, but it doesn't mean that India isn't going to play an important role in those other sectors. So I think that I think that's where you know we we should be focusing around skills recognition, movement of people, um, and so on. So for example, you know where that sort of the rubber hits the road, if, um, for lack of a better phrase, you know when I want to go to India, I can. I can get a visa in a couple of days. I punch in some numbers and a, a two by two photograph on the internet and, you know, someone sends me an ETA online and off I go. Whereas someone like me, the equivalent of me in India to come to Australia to an equivalent conference needs to send through bank records and letters from their father saying that they're not going to stay in Australia. So I think that those things are really important signals that Australia is taking India seriously as well. Um, so, you know, as so I can say, I have my, my scepticism about what this is going to look like from a true trade diversification perspective, but they do have an important role to play in that bilateral relationship with Australia. And I think that that would probably be reflected across all of these different countries you look at. But places like the GCC and the UAE, a big piece around the movement of people. Part of, I suppose, that this, this goes to... Um 
you know the the broader environment is the signal rather than necessarily mm. uh, necessarily the detail of each agreement and and part of it is the the simply the skew in the global economy the us is a bit bigger than 20 trillion china's a bit smaller than 20 trillion and then number 3 is japan down at um down at 5 trillion the scale just doesn't match and maybe anil I'll turn to you i think maybe a frustration for all of us of all the other 196 economies that you can compare China to, people seem to most often choose India and compare it disfavorably, um, disfavorably with China. Besides being a bit of a frustration, I mean, is this the real problem? Do you think, Richard? Uh, I understand why people tend to compare because uh, in the last four decades there have been only two gigantic growth stories. One is China, and the second is India unfolding. So they obviously become emerging markets and the sheer population size, both are neck and neck on population at this point. So that sheer number makes it attractive and people tend to weigh the two together. But having said that, I don't agree with that comparison because uh, frankly, you're comparing apples and oranges. You know, this uh, China is uh, economy with a humongous size. It's uh, what, depending on whichever number you take, but it's anywhere between 14 to 17 trillion. And uh, India is 3.5 trillion. So sheer numbers, it, they don't stack up. Secondly, the China model of growth is very different. And the India model, which I dwelled on, uh, which both Erin and I dwelled on, from 80 to 23, if you look, it is uh, it is a pivot towards a more uh, market-friendly economy where you're not, you know, yes, there will be knee-jerk responses once in a while due to national security concerns. That's true for every country in the world. Nothing unique about India. But otherwise, it's getting easier and easier for foreign investors here. And if you have a challenge, you can go to the courts. Yes, our courts are a work in progress. That's an understatement. But the point is, there does exist an institution where you can go for some kind of, uh, you know, relief. Where So these, you know, there are two... I think two different countries. And uh, my thing is that, yes, uh, larger numbers wise, people tend to put them on the same plate, but I would differentiate the two uh, purely as I explained to you and uh, look to India as a very different model. And we, it's not going to create a West in India. That's very visible in the last 10 years. You may call it whatever, the nationalism or et cetera, but it's not that. It's the cultural thing. And, uh, you know, whether it's not even about any particular religion. It is purely Indian culture as such. So it will find it difficult. You will find them here, but the larger play is going to be different. So more and more investors have to calibrate their approach to something which is different. That is my simple point I'm making here. Don't try to put it in some particular silo. It won't fit, and then you will have a problem with your investments. That's the simple point. Well, that, that sounds like some very sage advice. Of course, different economies, different hemispheres, different history, and China's emergence to the extent it occurred in the great age of multilateralism and India is, is, is occurring perhaps more in a case of, in, a, in an era of increasing bilateralism. What influence do you think those differences will have? See, in a, uh, a fragmented world, you know, everybody would adapt, okay? So, we are getting more and more, yes, you have the United States, which is the, what I, I would say, the anchor even now of the world. But the rest is no longer the sole anchor. You know, whether there are pretenders, challengers, or the US clout is weakening, whichever way you look at it, there is a, a increasing tendency to a multipolar world. So you will have to adapt itself to this, and which is probably the reason 
uh, you have to go to the econo recent economic history of the United States, which the whole China theory didn't work out for them. So their own domestic economies got severely hurt. So they have been revisiting that. So WTO became a casualty uh, of uh, American economic, recent American economic history. But given that, the you can't change all that, right? So now countries are doing bilateral negotiations. And in this is very interesting that uh, India is actually negotiating as an equal. I use that word very carefully uh, because I've already explained that in economic might, we are nowhere equal. But I think what has changed today, which is what, uh, if you listen to carefully to the president's speech, Joe Biden, or any international leader, they all make this in a very subtle manner or very directly, that India has acquired the ability to give and take in a negotiating table. See, earlier it was all about take because they were never in a position, their economy was not so strong, there were huge challenges. We had, I mean, talk about planned economic framework, all these issues were there. So when they went into a negotiation, it was virtually a zero-sum game. So if you look at the headlines, India walks out of WTO, India does this, India. So it became a kind of lightning rod for everything that's negative, right? But today, whether you look at climate change, whether you look at trade, I mean, to ink uh, bilateral trade with the UAE is very, very bold. And of course, now with Australia, because UAE doesn't make anything. Okay, most of it is uh, imported and re-exported. So you're getting into a trade agreement with them. You got serious courage in doing that, which is, I think, coming from the fact that they believe that this India today can take these shocks if they come by their way. And uh, of course, there are always rare guard responses, but they don't think they need to go there. So that is the big change that we are seeing today in India at the global high table, and which is probably why it is getting so much of recognition, particularly in the West, because they've always argued that India never pays its bill, or rather doesn't even reach for his wallet to pay its bill. So today they're doing more, much more than that. The global high table, that's a great expression. Aaron, can I just ask, you, you've mentioned the, the G20 earlier, and we've obviously spoken quite a bit about the international environment. You're involved in the G20, and India is obviously hosting later this year. Can you give us a summary about how you think things are going and what's striking you about mm -hmm. preparations so far? Well, you say that India is hosting later this year, but it has been hosting since the 1st of December last year. And I've got to say, India's has been incredibly impressive. The sheer scale matches both the ambition and size, population size of India. Uh, and and the, the sheer amount of funding, I would love for someone to quantify that. I don't actually know the answer, but the amount of uh, money that has gone into the G20, but then also that periphery development that comes with it. And, you know, um, that means that you've, we've seen meetings in your tier one cities, but also your tier two, tier three, tier four cities. Uh, which does often happen in the G20, but again, at a scale that I just don't think we've seen before. Uh, and that has resulted in a lot of local development that that um, is, is, you know, communities will have really benefited from, from the G20. Well, I'm obviously someone who's got caught up in the theatre of September. So thanks for uh, <laughs> making it clear how much goes on behind the scenes. Can we switch tack a little bit? What, you know, when, when you think about, when people think about India, we talk about it, the, the digital side, both from an internal kind of infrastructure perspective and even, you know, the old, old <laughs> inverted commas outsourcing sector, which is becoming much more digital and it's a world which, which really suits India in that respect. Let's discuss that a bit. Anil, you said India's digital public goods have given India economic GPS. It's a great phrase. 
I'm not quite sure what it means. Can you talk us through it a little bit, please? Sure, Richard. Sure. Actually, what I was saying was that uh, the, if you combine the telecom revolution, which uh, basically, uh, particularly there's a pre-geo and a post-geo world in India. So the cost of data in India is probably the cheapest anywhere in the world. I mean, whenever I travel abroad, I realize how pampered we are in India. So, and, uh, so that is data is cheap. Secondly, the cost of phones and hardware have also dropped progressively over time. So you have the telecom revolution on one side, you have the data revolution on the other. And the third is the Aadhaar, which is the most critical part of India's play. So our entire edifice, not just of the digital economy, I think the Indian economy rests on Aadhaar. I'm not due credit is given to this. And again, it is a bipartisan consensus, which unfortunately, if you read the headlines, uh, screaming headlines, you rarely see that. So it has now covered the entire country. So you have these three things and your bank account. Okay, In 2010, 410 million people did not have a bank account. Thanks to Aadhaar, the EKYC or you know the know your customer doing it electronically uh, took off. Okay, so uh, India today has been able to almost achieve saturation in uh, bank bank account coverage. Uh, separate story as to what they'll do with the bank account, but they do own it. Now you combine these three: you have Aadhaar, you have bank account, and you have uh, your uh, telephone number. That is what I call the economic GPS. So it allowed the Indian government for the first time to identify the uh, beneficiary honestly. Otherwise, it was, you know, there was huge trickle-down losses, massive. So the famous quote where uh, the Rajiv Gandhi had said that for every $100 you spend, $15, $15 reach the ultimate beneficiary, or 100 rupees, whichever, it doesn't make a difference. The metric is the same. So it's that poor. Today, that 15 has gone to almost 90, 95%. And uh, just to back what I'm saying, the savings for this, the cumulative savings to the exchequer is 3 lakh crore plus. I'm not, it's not like every year, the cumulative savings. Because as in when you fix these ghost accounts and uh, you eject uh, illegitimate people from it, those, those are one-off wins. So today, it is about 3 lakh crore. That is twice the size, almost, of the uh, first COVID relief budget, which was about 1.7 lakh crore rupees. So that tells you the scale at which the saving. So a lot of people ask me, where do they get their money? I said, this is one of the reasons where they're getting their money. They're making sure there's a tracking device on everything. Uh, meaning not literally, but I meant they can, <laughs> they can, track, <laughs> they can track the I mean, trail of money. If it doesn't come to your bank account, it comes to my bank account. They can easily trace it back. And obviously you, you or I'll be in, I'll be in trouble. So these are issues, you know, which is why I called it the economic GPS. So they brought more out of the shadow into the light and the, the benefits are obvious. Um, Aaron, uh, uh, we couldn't have a discussion on India without talking about um, climate. India made, along with a range of other economies in the last two years, a firm zero carbon commitment. India set 2070 as its zero carbon uh, deadline. Um, how much do you think this has permeated the policy discussion, policy process? Is it a, a real constraint so far? I mean, other economies have found that this progressively becomes more difficult. Where is India in that journey, do you think? Yeah, that's a, a really good uh, question. And the uh, catchphrase for the G20 India is one earth, one family, one future, which really captures that ambition and I 
think where this might become difficult for India is one, I mean, 2070 is a long time away. That's a lot of that's a lot of elections between now and 2070. Uh, and um, there's definitely this defining vision around India's G20 presidency. But where, the, where, where this will become difficult, like you mentioned with many other countries, what does that mean for India's development? And this has always been the moral or ethical question, I think, from, say, the Austra Australian standpoint or developed nations standpoint, we already benefited from industrialization and from development, which was terrible for the climate, uh, but we're already there. And so does that mean that countries like India that still have a long way to go in terms of bringing their, you know, one point, what are we up to annual 1.5 billion people? Um, you know, what what does that mean in terms of development for those people? Uh, because there's still a lot of questions around uh, energy that need to be solved in particular. These are really challenging international policy and economic and business questions that I don't think have been quite resolved yet. I actually don't know that we've squared how we solve this problem. Even, even Europe, of course, has struggled. It's found when the tension rises. Absolutely. To yeah. keep on, on the previous yeah. trajectory. But you are saying, you know, if you look at a lot of the communiques coming out of the G20 this year, you see this real intersection between climate change in particular uh, and whatever that engagement group is interested in. So if you look at gender and climate change, if you look at the T20, the think tanks are talking about climate change, this is this is really permeating through the system. Um, so, you know, it'll be again, we sort of talked about interesting to see what's going to happen at that G20 level with policy outcomes at the end of the year. But I, I do think that this is a challenge. And it's not just an India problem, as you mentioned. And the EU has really struggled with, you know, that transition. Uh, and I think that, you know, India is going to be in the same boat as well. Uh, Anil, de development, energy security, you mentioned 1.2 billion people and less than 2,000 US dollars ahead. In 2010, 410 million people didn't have a bank account. The India-China comparison, I don't want to close on that, but I do want to ask you, China... Um, lauded as having the largest and fastest poverty reduction in history. Could India eclipse that? Well, Richard, it may or may not, but uh, uh, <clears throat> what uh, I would, uh, again, like I said, uh, this comparison, I'll veer away from it, but I would just stick to what India has achieved. It is simply staggering. The number I mentioned to you, 400 million people being lifted out of poverty between 2005 and 2022. Uh, it's an incredible task and given our broken administrative <coughs> structure, etc., it's a remarkable uh, gain. And of course, the huge corruption that uh, impacts these public policy or development programs in India. Uh, so uh, the th key thing is that the approach undertook a pivot, which is Actually, a global pivot is not just about India on approaching poverty elevation through a multidimensional approach rather than, you know, looking at it as consumption or education or individual silos. And I think that is what has really changed the game, particularly in the last decade and more, is that uh, I'll just share some numbers with you. So, you know, they have uh, this as on 1st February this year, they equipped 11.7 uh, crore households with toilets, 9.6 crore LPG connections under Ujwala, and 47.8 crore bank accounts have been opened, and they have provided insurance cover for 44.6 crore. So you're basically, you know, 500 million people in India, if you look at it, did not have the basic wherewithal for so long. 
today they have all these things you know there is saturation in electricity saturation in roads so it's only that their skill levels uh, are extremely low because of circumstances socio economic circumstances but the basic things that they did not have to worry about the cooking gas i mean these are all you know very modern new concepts in india i mean if at a personal level my own mother uh, used to cook on a hearth i mean as a kid i remember you know i used to use wooden sticks and things like that and coal for that matter to cook and her cooking gas came in the 70s and her refrigerator came in the 80s and our color television came in 2000 you know the millennium so so we you know for us we are not i mean we are not poor but we are not we are middle class and this is our transition material transition imagine the poor in that situation they have only now coming up to speed with these things and which is what you mentioned about you know the telecom revolution etc so i think to me india's story is going to be unique because the way it has been managed it is uh, so we should try and look at it as within itself so all of these are investment opportunities please remember 400 million people are now inside looking out previously they were outside looking in so there are potential demand for you whether it's education uh, clothes consumer durables and we have noticed somewhere around the 2000s there's been a pivot in consumer behavior between rural and urban i mentioned the urban idea to you it's a convergence now so what urban india consumes rural india also consumes i'm not talking about the high end fashion but basic things they consume toothpaste they consume toothbrushes these are all now converged it's no longer unique you know to the rural india so to me the story about Uh, poverty elevation in india is a fundamental transformation which is probably the best metaphor for change in india is that you have managed to lift so many people out of poverty and in a very different way from the traditional idea of subsidies etc you have empowered them let me use that word thanks for joining us on blue lens on mic you can hear more by following us on soundcloud and finding me on twitter This podcast is intended as thought leadership material. It is not published with the intention of providing any direct or indirect recommendations or to influence any person to make a decision in relation to any financial product or class of financial products. It is general in nature and does not take account of the circumstances of any individual or class of individuals. For further information, please refer to the full disclaimer at institutional.anz.com.